Do you enjoy a catchy graphic or some well-presented visual content that people can add into their social media and you think to yourself, how have you done that? It looks amazing. I have to admit, it's more about the writing and broadcasting than the artwork for me. It's not my polished area. But, with a bit of help from Canva for Teams, I realised that it could be because with it, you or you and your team can collaborate and design quite quickly and easily sleek-looking content for your own standout social media posts, right through to documents and business presentations that will get you that deal. Since I've messed about with it, I've found templates galore for my Instagram posts and stories, landscape for my Facebook posts, thumbnails for YouTube, the list goes on. Plus, with features such as Magic Eraser, any of those finer details that you want to change, then you can do easy as, and you can be creating your own of these in no time at all. Having fun whilst you do so, I bet you will, yes. Because most people like the social media appreciated and liked, don't they? With Canva and its many branches, you've got Canva Docs and Canva Whiteboards, which give you and your team the space to brainstorm for the best results you can. Canva Presentations, which will make yours sleek and look up to that next level. And Canva Print, so all of these inspirations you've turned into designs can be brought to life on anything, from mugs to posters, all printed planet-friendly. You'll enjoy messing about for hours on Canva. Having fun with the many premium fonts, the graphics, and the free library of videos and photos at your disposal. It's loaded with the templates and tools to support your creative process each step of the way and make your creations ones to remember. Design and collaborate with Canva for Teams. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you go to canva.me slash TCE. That's C-A-N-V-A dot M-E slash T-C-E for a free 45-day extended trial. Canva.me slash T-C-E. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, coming to you each time around with a tale of true crime, or tales, that's off the norm, usually not your run-of-the-mill ones, and ones that I've scoured the UK and Ireland to bring for you. Doing so is myself, Paul, the creator, host, and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. I'm accompanied by Pigsy, the true crime enthusiast cat, as per ever, and we're completed by yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts that make the show so worthwhile to do. It is as wonderful as always having you joining us, which I thank you kindly for doing so, and I hope that as you have, then the episode finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. This time around then on The Enthusiast, no messing about here, straight down to the tail. I bring an episode that had its genesis in the previous episode of the show, A Boy Called Daniel, which is still out now if you haven't yet heard it, but specifically to do with the wrestling angle of the episode. I don't know if it's still today as popular in the UK as it was in the 1990s and early 2000s, although it is still undoubtedly massive worldwide. But I certainly remember it very well from these times myself when I was sort of growing up and the wild and wonderful characters such as the Ultimate Warrior or Jake the Snake Roberts, right through to people like The Rock and Kurt Angle. Little known fact about Kurt Angle, he hosts the UK True Crime podcast now. And I also remember some of the wild and wonderful match types and events like the Royal Rumble and the Survivor Series. But also with some of the bizarre sounding finishing moves that there were, like the warrior splash, 
don't get it on your clothes, whatever you do. The Scorpion Death Drop or The People's Elbow. Tombstone Pile Driver, Stone Cold Stunner, the list goes on. Now, of course, it is all massively scripted wrestling, and such moves are done by people who train long and hard to do this, who know exactly how to land, the exact amount of force to exert, and exactly where to aim for on an opponent for it to look as effective as it does, yet still be safe. I mean, I wouldn't want a scorpion death drop as it is, but I certainly wouldn't want one from someone who didn't bloody know what they were doing. We just go with what they've seen on telly, as kind of sadly Daniel did. Whilst I was researching Daniel's case, I came across a few similar themed accounts of individuals who, be it die-hard wrestling fans, or just individuals like mindless sheep copying something they've seen on TV, but of the consequences that can occur when they've emulated what they've seen trained and experienced professionals doing and making look easy, and when all pretense stops with horrific and tragic results. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of injury detail, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts for an episode I've entitled One Wrong Move. Now, occasionally with professional wrestling, things may go off script slightly, well-timed falls might be botched, and moves may connect fully where they once would have been just rolled with. But these are purely due to mistiming and are accidental. Accidents happen, don't and the wrestlers are professional enough to realise what they're doing can seriously injure. Most of them, even if they are hurt by these moves, exercise self-restraint. But what about when one of them sees red and doesn't? On March the 29th, 2021, 33-year-old professional wrestler with 17 years' experience, James Thomas Alexander Riley of Prunus Close in Ferndown, who regularly performed at British holiday camps, was sentenced to Bournemouth Crown Court to 21 months in prison after admitting an offence of inflicting grievous bodily harm inflicted during a bout against trainee wrestler Robert Wilson at the Scout Hut in Ferndown's Cherry Grove on Saturday the 8th of February of the previous year. A Dorset police statement from the time reads... The victim, in his 30s, was a fellow wrestler who had just returned to wrestling after a long break and was being trained by the defendant. He stepped in to face Riley when another club member pulled out at short notice. The pair had therefore not had much time to practice, but had agreed some props to use and a sign if they needed recovery time during the match. During the match, the victim was bent over with his hands on his knees, at which point the defendant kicked him with force to the middle of the face. The victim felt in immediate pain and saw blood all over the canvas, his arms and his wrestling gear, but Riley told him to keep going. He said he was dazed and continued as if he was on autopilot until the bell rang for the end of the contest. The incident was filmed by a member of the public on their mobile phone and a link to the disturbing footage can be found in the episode show notes. Prosecuting, Tom Evans Casey told the court how Riley was a former professional wrestler with more than 17 years' experience who wrestled under the ring name 
Jivin J. Knox, and who owned and was head coach at his own wrestling company called Fight Star. 32-year-old pool resident and former insurance salesman Robert Wilson had joined Riley's eight-week training program that January, hoping to become a part-time weekend wrestler. And a part of the course was for students to take part in live events, slams as they are known, in front of a live audience. That February, a bout was arranged between the two, as said, due to the scheduled opponent having to pull out at short notice and Riley telling Mr. Wilson that he would be going in the ring instead. Now such fights would of course usually be rehearsed beforehand, but because of the late notice it was agreed that Riley, as we said a wrestler with 17 years experience, would call the moves out as the fight went on. Props such as a baking tray, a fold-up chair and a bamboo cane were all to be used during the bout, and it was scripted that Riley would end up winning which was all agreed between the pair, and Mr Wilson asked his best friend Paul Bray to record the fight from his front row seat so he could proudly show it to his wife and children later. However, during the bout, when Riley was struck as rehearsed, but the kick from Robert Wilson was somewhat misplaced and it aggravated pre-existing nerve damage to Riley, Riley later described to the court that he saw red and his nerves lit up like a Christmas tree. Robert Wilson explained later. I had concerns going into the match, but I trusted that he was going to call it and it was going to be okay. He was down on the floor and because I was the antagonist, he said to me I should stay on top of him when he was down and I caught him with a kick to the gut area. He hissed at me, receipt, which is terminology for payback, and the assault was a result of his prior instruction. I positioned myself on my hands and knees and I was expecting him to hit me on the back but instead he kicked me in the face as if taking a goal kick in football. Robert's friend Mr Bray who'd filmed the incident footage from which was later used as evidence to convict Riley of the horrific assault said It was all fine then all of a sudden it wasn't. Jay was stood clear for a few seconds and then booted Rob in the face. He put everything into that kick and didn't hold back. It was obvious it wasn't part of the act or that it was an accident. Robert Wilson continued. It was the worst pain I'd experienced in my life. My face just exploded and I realised it was a lot more than a broken nose. Blood was coming out like a fountain and the canvas was red. I could hear the audience yelling to stop the fight. Although the audience were shocked by what they'd seen and children in the audience were crying, so distressed were they at it, Riley insisted that they carried on for three more minutes until the scheduled end. Mr Wilson was then helped out of the ring only to collapse in the kitchen area of the scout hut that the organised wrestling match was being held at. Rushed to hospital, he was found to have suffered fractures to his eye sockets, nose, jaw and teeth and ultimately had to undergo three hours of reconstructive surgery to put metal plates in his face and to have his mouth wired shut for six weeks. There are photographs available of Robert in hospital recovering and to be fair his injuries do look horrendous. That must have been some powerful kick that. And a deliberate one too. 
For according to Paul Bray, Riley had told other junior wrestlers at his training school the following day that he had purposely kicked Mr. Wilson thus because he'd hit some nerve damage. Though he'd sent Mr. Wilson a text the same day telling him that he had accidentally had aggravated this pre-existing injury when he'd kicked him during the match, but apologised for his actions and admitted that he had acted like an animal. It's a bit too late when it's as serious as that though, which ultimately led to Riley appearing in court a year later, charged with grievous bodily harm. Mr. Wilson said in his victim impact statement read during the hearing, What James did to me falls outside the parameters of a wrestling show. I was unrecognisable. He could have killed me. What happened to me was not a wrestling accident. It was not part of the show. It was assault. He continued the fight despite the audience telling him to stop and children crying at what they were seeing. He took the conscious decision to hurt me. He betrayed the trust I placed in him and he left me unrecognisable. I feel disgusted at what he did. Edward Warren Casey, defending Riley, called for a suspended sentence as he told Bournemouth Crown Court that his client was remorseful for his actions and had since retired from wrestling and wanted to make sure people didn't make the same mistake that he had. Despite this, presiding Mr Justice Stephen Climey Casey sentenced Riley to 21 months imprisonment and imposed a 10-year restraining order preventing him from contacting the Wilson family telling him during the course of the bout which is largely a fictitious event in the sense that it is largely scripted you suffered a significant degree of pain because of a pre-existing injury your reaction to that was to lose your temper and effectively take revenge that revenge being a single blow with a foot the consequences are dramatic it is aggravated in part because you were the person in charge of this situation it was a blow by a professional wrestler. I cannot allow a suspended sentence. Detective Constable Steve Davis of Bournemouth CID said following Riley's conviction, James Riley subjected his victim to a violent assault that went far beyond anything that was appropriate within the parameters of the wrestling match. The victim has been left with injuries that have had a significant and lasting impact. Indeed, for apart from making a slow recovery and living with the constant pain that injuries such as described must bring, Robert Wilson has also since been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder following the horrific assault, leading him to lose his high-pressured sales job as he's unable to cope in such situations and now works as a warehouse operative. Another individual expressing remorse from reacting in such a way, out of seeing red, was engineer Dean Smith, who in November 2013 almost killed his then best friend Mark Ruddick, leaving him with brain injuries and a fractured skull by performing a professional wrestling move named the Spine Buster upon him. If you don't know what a Spine Buster is, and fair play, I wouldn't blame you if you didn't, but if you don't know, this is a move where a wrestler usually catching someone bouncing off the ropes towards them and facing their opponent, grabs either their waist or thighs and slams them back down hard in the ring, the back of their opponent taking the combined weight of both. Now of course, these are normally performed in wrestling rings, 
the floor of which is comprised of an elevated steel beam and a wooden plank stage topped by foam padding and a canvas cover, which is designed to, and so will cushion, much of this impact. It's not really suited for doing in the car park outside a pub in the town of Washington in Tynan Weir though. And yet, this is exactly what Dean Smith did to his best friend. I imagine former best friend right afterwards. In a drunken row during a night out at Chevy's Bar on Emerson Road in November 2013. When the case came to Newcastle Crown Court on October the 13th of the following year, Prosecutor Michael Bunch Casey told the court that the two men had known each other for years, being close friends since schooling, and had both been out socialising together when they clashed the previous November, saying, It would appear that the two were essentially vying for the attentions of the same young lady. It appears from the evidence that she discounted any approaches being made by the defendant, and that, it seems, angered the defendant. The court heard how at the end of the night, Mr Ruddick had exchanged phone numbers with the girl and this led to a row between him and Smith, which prompted the violence. When they'd started rowing, Smith had suddenly held his friend's knees and then smashed him upon the ground, causing Mr Ruddick to hit his head on the road and to be immediately knocked unconscious as his former friend walked away boasting, proud of his hard man actions. Only one dig. Triple R bastard or what ain't. However, he must have changed his tune and sobered up immediately when he realised just how badly hurt Michael was, for he needed to be rushed immediately to hospital for emergency surgery due to the fractured skull and bruising and bleeding to the brain that the attack had left him with. He spent time in the high dependency unit during the six days he was to spend in hospital recovering and is today left with the scars of the thick laceration to his scalp caused from the injury, as well as the 59 staples to the skin that were required as the operation to fit plates and screws into his head was performed. Newcastle Crown Court heard a victim impact statement from Michael Ruddock during the hearing, in which he said that although he'd made a good recovery from his injuries, he still found the effects of what had happened to him devastating as you would do with an injury like that, surely, or having to spend a week in the high-dependency unit. It's got to play on your mind, hasn't it? And yet, Smith, of Glencarran Close in Washington, escaped a custodial sentence for the attack. His defence barrister, Lee Fish Casey, described to the court that what had happened was a moment of madness, and added, describing his client, he is a decent, law-abiding, hard-working young man who doesn't behave in this way on a regular basis. The defendant retains some hope that there may come a time when he is able to apologise to his friend and perhaps begin to put together the friendship that has been shattered. This is a decent young man who has done a very foolish thing which had horrendous consequences. After Smith admitted causing grievous bodily harm, he was spared an immediate spell behind bars when presiding Mr Justice John Evans sentenced him to 18 months imprisonment concurrent with 200 hours of unpaid work, a two-month nighttime curfew, £1,300 court costs and £2,500 victim compensation. However, 
the judge suspended Smith's prison sentence after hearing references about his normally impeccable character, his mild manner, and his exemplary work record, telling him, So many times when people are put on the ground in the way you put Mr. Ruddick on the ground, they don't get up. You grabbed him around the knees, picked him up, and dumped him on the ground in a move, I dare say, you have been watching on TV, performed by professional wrestlers and called a spine buster. It may be, watching TV and seeing that move performed again and again by professionals, you've seen the person who's the subject of such a move get up and move around as if nothing has happened. That is what professionals are able to do when they're practised in the art. You are not, but you seem to think you were that night. The net result is that you nearly killed your best friend. Proud of you, only one dig now. So a couple of examples here of people being seriously injured due to wrestling moves, both committed in the heat of seeing red at the time, and both Michael and Robert were extremely lucky to come away with merely the horrifying injuries that they did, because each could easily have been fatal attacks. But others, sadly, aren't as lucky as them. Late in the evening of Thursday the 20th of April 2017, at about 9.30pm, an ambulance was called to a property in Tembury Crescent in Aspley, near Nottingham, following reports of an unresponsive young male who had been brought into the property from the street outside by a group of others about 30 minutes before, after having had collapsed and who was believed to be in cardiac arrest. Though a couple of people had attempted CPR, but unsuccessfully, the eventually attending paramedics discovered the male, 14-year-old Reese Seagrave, a former Bullwell Academy student, lying on the floor surrounded by vomit, and with them taken over, but to still no avail, then transported him to the Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham, where at 10.15pm, despite the efforts of doctors to save him, he was pronounced dead. Post-mortem found bruising and abrasions consistent with a fall to the ground and relatively minor bruising to the back of his head that was sufficient to cause unconsciousness. But vomit was found in his airways. Thus, cause of death was given as aspiration by gastric contents, the stomach contents blocking the windpipe following the head injury, which was the underlying cause for the fatal aspiration. A female friend of the family, who asked not to be named, claimed. He was slammed in the street onto the concrete. Then he was dragged back to the house. The person who lives there has mental problems, and I think someone has a key, and a group of lads go in there. They didn't call 999. They left him on a bed until one of the lads eventually went to get help. Tributes, candles and flowers were left outside the end terrace property in Tembury Crescent in the days after Reese's death. His paternal grandmother Linda said, His dad is devastated, is just truly awful. He only saw him the night before it happened, and he's in pieces. Commenting on social media, his uncle Andrew Daniel said, RIP my little nephew, love you with all my heart. Three kisses. It was the first of dozens of touching tributes left to the lad online, along the lines of Louise Davis's, who posted, Rest in peace, Reese. such a lovely young lad. So many people left in shock. 
taken way too soon. My heart goes out to all family and friends. A message was even posted to the Nottingham Forest supporters group on Facebook, urging the club's fans to applaud in Reese's memory in the 14th minute of that upcoming Saturday's football match against Reading. The message, posted by fan Trisha Brooks and accompanying a photo of Reese, reads This is Reese Daniel, nephew of our friend Andrew Daniel. Unfortunately, Reese has passed away this morning, so if possible, can you share and please give a minute's round of applause on the 14th minute of the game on Saturday against Reading as a mark of respect to Reese on one of our own? RIP Reese, a wee angel now. Let's hope we can get a win for you. Condolences to our friend Andrew and family. On Monday, November the 13th, 2017, 18-year-old Cole Mackin of Albury Drive, also in Aspley, pleaded guilty to the manslaughter of Reese Seagrave at a court hearing in Nottingham Crown Court, where presiding Mr Justice Gregory Dickinson Casey described Reese's death as a terrible loss of life, telling Mackin, You've pleaded guilty to the extremely serious offence of manslaughter. Part of the tragedy of this case is that you didn't intend him any serious harm at all. Adjourning sentencing until the 19th of December, the judge decided not to remand Mackin in custody, but instead granted him bail on the condition he would report regularly to the probation service and was also prohibited from contacting Reese's family members. Addressing the issue, Judge Dickinson added, I'm not going to take your bail away today, but please do not take this as any indication as to the outcome. You will spend considerable time away from your family. Returning to court to be sentenced on December the 19th, a packed courtroom heard how the actions of Mackin resulted in the tragic death of Reese on April the 20th in Tembury Crescent in Aspley. Andrew Vout Casey, prosecuting, said on the day Reese died, April the 20th, he'd spent the evening at his dad's house nearby. The 14-year-old's parents were separated and he lived nearby with his mother and had asked his dad for £10 to buy cannabis with. After being given £5, Reese had left the house at about 9pm and had bumped into then 17-year-old Mackin, a close friend of his, and two others in Tembury Crescent. Mackin told police at interview that he'd become involved in a minor dispute with Reese on the street after being asked to lend him £5. Reese had asked Mackin for the remaining £5 he required for cannabis, but Mackin had refused him this and an argument had started. Mr Vout said CCTV had captured what happened next, explaining Footage shows Mackin picking Reese up by his upper thighs. He raises him up and slams him down on his head his upper back. The group then gathers around Reese. They tap his face and try to wake him up, and he is then placed in the recovery position. He is vomited and urinated. A motorcyclist who had stopped at the scene, who Mackin was initially aggressive towards until he recognised him and then said, I'm glad it's you, bro, and I didn't know who it was. The man had asked him what had happened, and Mackin replied, Nothing, and He's just had too much to drink and too much weed. But when they couldn't rouse him, those who gathered around Reese, who was unconscious, 
carried into a nearby house in Tenbury Crescent. Mr. Vought told the hearing Mackin went to get help from a neighbour, telling her, Can you come across and look at this person? And, He's had mamba. And, I think he's dead. I think I killed him. The householder started CPR and Mackin initially helped, putting Reese in the recovery position, before leaving the scene and going straight to his mother's house. In somewhat of a panic, he later that night handed himself into police. Though he was arrested, he was released on police bail, and it was only to be some months later, in September of that year, actually, that he was charged with manslaughter. In a heartbreaking victim impact statement that she read to the court, Reese's mother, Michelle Saxton, said, in part, from the witness box, Although I had heard stories about Cole being a bully around the estate, I thought my baby was safe. How wrong I was. No one should have to live with this pain for something so senseless. I hope Cole gets punished for what he did, and I'd like to ask him, why? To lose my baby at 14 years old is heart-wrenching. He was kind, gentle and funny and didn't have a bad bone in his body. I have never, and still do not accept, my baby is gone. I still make his tea and meals are cooked and waiting for him every night. I'll never get to see him grow into a man, get married and have children of his own. Reese's father, Robert Seagrave, who ironically shared an interest in wrestling with his son, sat tearfully looking on as the prosecutor read from his statement on his behalf, saying, My Reese was the most loving, loyal, brave son you could ask for. He was such a nice lad. I've not only lost my son, but my best friend in the whole world. It must be so painful for people to lose someone through such senseless actions, mustn't it? I can't even begin to imagine it. Stephen Gosnell Casey, defending Mackin, said the pair had had a minor disagreement, adding, Cole Mackin cannot explain why he did what he did. It happened in an instant. He describes it as a wrestling move, for one of the passions of them as friends together was watching wrestling. The essence of my mitigation is to say sorry on his behalf. He will have to live with this for the rest of his life. Presiding Mr Justice Jeremy Baker Casey told Mackin, Your actions were wholly unjustified and although they occurred in the spur of the moment, the body slamming of Reese was both aggressive in its nature and obviously dangerous. Body slams are particularly dangerous manoeuvres. Mackin was then sentenced to three years and eight months imprisonment and was told he would begin his sentence in a young offenders institution and would have to serve at least half of it there before being released on licence, meaning that today he will more than likely have been released. Speaking after Mackin's sentencing, Detective Inspector Kevin Broadhead said, We welcome this sentence and I'd like to commend the officers who worked on the investigation working together with the Crown Prosecution Service and the medical profession. No sentence will ever bring Reese back, but we hope that it will give his family a sense of closure and allow them to get on with their lives. Hopefully, it will also give Mackin the chance to reflect on his actions and the impact it has had on not only Reese's family, but also his own family and friends.
Indeed. So people don't just get seriously hurt, sometimes they die too. All of the accounts you've heard thus far highlight just this, though through them, I'm sure that there was a degree of remorse for the consequences of their actions heard in the tales. You could say that a guilty plea at the earliest opportunity reflects this for their realised stupid and reckless actions, though committed in the heat of the moment. And all judicial punishments aside, these people have to live with what they've done forever, which to you or me would be punishment enough. However, the final account of the episode I have to bring to you shows that this isn't always the case. There isn't always remorse there, and it isn't always just in the heat of the moment, there and then. It's also one of the cruelest crimes that I've ever come across. And for it, we head back to 2015 and down to the seaside town of Ramsgate in Kent. Back then, in early 2015, 54-year-old Delith Andrews, a small of stature woman, she was just 4 feet 11 inches tall and weighed 8 stone, and who was described as compassionate and generous to a fault, though also due to the bipolar she'd been diagnosed with some years before as very vulnerable and perhaps too trusting, happily lived alone in a two-bedroom semi-detached house in the town's Lorena Road. Somewhat estranged to a degree from her family, Delith nonetheless kept a routine for herself, regularly spending time with, or at the very least, telephoning friends, keeping herself busy in general. It was in Delith's kind and compassionate nature to help anybody out if she could, so when she met homeless mother of three, Elaine Morley, through a mutual friend, it wasn't long afterwards that she offered Elaine her spare room as a place to stay rent-free, which was accepted. I'd like to think somewhat graciously. And for a couple of weeks, all was harmonious. Delith probably even enjoyed the company. However, within weeks, Morley had shown her true colours, and taken advantage of Delith's nature, had, without Delith's permission, moved her three deadbeat sons into the house too. First 20-year-old Joshua Knight, then 22-year-old Scott, and 19-year-old Adam and the once quiet, well-kept terrace house became like a war zone, as Morley and his sons began to dominate the home. A jury was later told that the family were, I quote, noisy and antisocial, playing loud music which was going all times of the day and night, and were aggressive and intimidating when confronted. And Delith's friends and neighbours soon began to notice that her home was being systematically wrecked. The consensus between them being that it began to resemble a drug den. Now this wasn't too far from the truth. For these four cuckoos, it was the politest word I could use for them, cuckoos, though it certainly isn't the one that came into my mind first, I can tell you, I'm sure you can imagine what it was, had almost from the start begun to act as though Delith wasn't even there. Her home was treated like a zoo by the freeloading family. It was left in a constant mess, Furnishings were left damaged or smashed, and any possessions of Delith's that could be hawked for a quick profit to buy drugs or then legal synthetic substances such as spice, anything, were taken and sold, down to even a television and most of her jewellery. Morley and her three sons had soon taken over Delith's property completely, and now began to turn their attentions to Delith herself also. 
she was treated like a cash cow to them. The disability benefits more often than not were distributed solely between the four, leaving in nothing, as well as treated her as a source of amusement to them. For example, one neighbour described later how on one occasion they'd seen Delith standing in her living room as one of the brothers pulled down her trousers, saying, Look at the div now. However, not content with just stealing from and ridiculing Delith, the brothers had also begun to use physical violence towards her. For the same neighbour described how on one occasion when asked about a bruise to her face, Delith had confessed to her that Joshua Knight had slapped her. It was to be the tip of the iceberg. In the early hours of Sunday the 17th of November 2015, Delith's support worker called police to attend the property after she'd received a call from Elaine Morley to say one of her sons had stamped all over her friend Delith and she was requesting an ambulance for her. Emergency services who attended the property shortly afterwards found Delith still conscious, though lying injured on her back in her double bed, complaining weakly. They were jumping all over me. This is how Delith described it, jumping all over me. Bear that in mind, for when she was rushed to the accident and emergency department of Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother Hospital in Margate, X-ray examinations of Delith showed that she had multiple rib fractures, in fact, to every single rib along her left side, fractures to her pelvis, a punctured lung, and her body left a swath of bruises. Pictures of Delith's bed that were later made available, and that I'll share on the show's Instagram page, show several of the slats of it splintered or broken in half, even underneath a mattress, demonstrating the force that must have been used to inflict these injuries. This is to an 8 stone, 4 foot 11, 54 year old vulnerable woman. A police interview with Delith, filmed using a body-worn camera and recorded as she lay in her hospital bed there, was the following year played to a court, in which she expanded upon the assault, describing how they had thrown me on the bed, then punched and stamped on me. She was then asked by the police officer, What happened then? Delith, they kicked me in the back. Any reason why they would do this? I don't know, just showing off I think. Who done it then? Josh, Adam and Scott. As she lay there in pain, she also told police how Scott had broken her mobile phone earlier when she'd threatened to call the police. Now, initially, all three Knight brothers were arrested and charged with grievous bodily harm. A charge that, however, was to be replaced with one of murder just over a month later, because sadly, so badly injured was Delith from this assault that her condition deteriorated, causing her to be moved for specialist treatment to King's College Hospital, and at the end of December 2015, she died. An examining pathologist concluded that her death was as a result of the lasting effects of the injuries that she'd received during the assault. The whole terrible story in full was to come out when the three Knight brothers came to trial at Canterbury Crown Court on the 22nd of June 2016, and where each issued a plea of not guilty to the murder of Delith Andrews, 
though all three admitted causing grievous bodily harm with intent to Delith before she died, and Joshua and Adam Knight offered guilty pleas to the lesser charge of her manslaughter. Prosecutor Philip Bennett's Casey told the court how Miss Andrews, as we said, was described by neighbours as being too trusting, had gotten to know the brother's mother, Elaine Morley, who was homeless, and she invited her to move into a neat and well-kept semi-detached home. Continuing, Joshua moved in as well, and as time progressed, Elaine Morley's other sons, Scott and Adam, also moved into Miss Andrews' home, which Elaine Morley and his sons soon dominated and controlled. The prosecutor said how by the summer of 2015, living there rent-free, so much did they treat Delith's home as their own that the brothers had smashed up the living room of the house, punched holes in doors there, and Elaine Morley had put a foot through a glass panel. Mr Bennett's also exampled to the court how Miss Andrews had for many years spoken by phone to a friend, Patricia Hodson, each evening without fail, but these calls had gradually stopped, and Elaine Morley began answering the house phone saying, Elaine's residence. He described how over time they had also begun systematically siphoning Delith's disability living allowance, and then selling off Delith's possessions to buy spice, her electrical items and jewellery, down to the point where all she had remaining was a single pair of earrings that she habitually wore. And then, of course, came the events of the evening of the 16th of November 2015, which Mr Bennett outlined to the jury in his opening address by using the words of Scott Knight, saying, he told police how Joshua and Adam had begun the assault, jumping on Miss Andrews and rainbow flipping it onto her bed. He told officers that this had broken some of the wooden slats and his brothers encouraged him to join in. He described the moves that he and his brothers performed, saying they jumped onto her from the sofa and did moves with titles such as rainbow flips, T-bones, cliffhangers and FUs. He described the assault continuing for hours from 8pm or 9pm through to 3am with the brothers following her wherever she went in the house. The prosecutor added, His mother was out during the assault, but Knight observed that she didn't care as she wasn't really Miss Andrew's friend and didn't even pay rent to stay in the house. Wicked beyond belief, isn't it? Don't they sound absolute vile scum? Now, despite the pleas that they'd entered, all three brothers turned on each other and tried to suggest that the other two had been the main offenders, like the rats that they sound. But interviews with each brother following their arrests, as well as the interview with Delith that I described before, were played to the jury and that were to suggest different circumstances. I include extracts from each interview here as I was able to find through researching and the following does contain disturbing descriptions of violence. The jury first saw a videotaped interview of Joshua Knight, the youngest brother, being interviewed by police about the attack. In the tape, Joshua told Detective Constable James Franklin that he had lived in Delith's house once before, but had gone to work on a travelling funfair, and had since returned. Reference the 16th of November of the previous year, he continued, From the morning, I was out all day. I came back at about five o'clock. 
I was sitting downstairs with my girlfriend and we went upstairs to watch a film. We fell asleep at about 10 o'clock, but a bit later I heard a bit of banging. It was like a little banging, it wasn't that loud. I didn't think anything of it. I woke up in the morning and asked where Del was and my mum said she'd gone to the hospital. In a second interview, however, Joshua is told by DC Franklin, Scott has told us in detail that him, yourself and Adam repeatedly assaulted Del. She has bruising on her hands, her face, every single one of her ribs is broken, she has a broken pelvis and a broken vertebrae in her back. Joshua Knight replies, Whoa, shit, that is shocking. Del told us that you and your brothers attacked her. I'm going to tell you something, yeah? She takes a lot of medication. How do you think she got those injuries? I don't know, to be honest. It must have been my brothers because they were the only people in the house. He described how you took it in turns to do various WWE moves on her. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, however, Joshua Knight later admitted, Okay, this is what happened, right? I didn't see most of it. All I did was just jump on her once or twice and I accidentally landed on her face. I felt out of order. That was just messing around though. She even laughed about it with me and I gave her a cuddle. Later, Joshua says that he went downstairs to see what his brothers were doing with Delith and saw them chucking her on the slats of the bed. He continued, again repeating, I jumped on her once or twice, but I didn't do it hard but I accidentally landed on her face. I said, this has got to stop, it's going too far. They started throwing Del through her bed. I only know that because I went upstairs to go to the toilet and they said, Josh, come in. And they were launching her through the bed, bouncing her off the bed and hitting her head on cabinets. Asked whether he heard Delith call for help, Joshua said, I looked at her, she couldn't even fucking breathe properly. I said I'd call an ambulance and she said that she was fine. Her face was like a person who'd just been tortured. Perhaps because she just had been. Scott Knight at first completely denied being in the house in Lorena Road, claiming the three brothers were away for the evening scoring an illegal high called Insane Joker, and even had the gall to say he believed Miss Andrews was putting it on, claiming she kept asking him for roll-ups. He was asked by the detective if he'd punched, kicked or stamped on Miss Andrews and denied it, adding, I don't know, seriously, I don't know. But then he was told by the officer that Joshua had given a different account of the evening. He was asked who was telling the truth and he didn't respond. The officer says, Are you telling the truth? Scott answers, No, I was at home. Okay, why have you lied to me then? Because it's shit. It's them who's, who's get me into shit, yeah? He claimed that Joshua had started jumping on Miss Andrews, followed by Adam, and then, I quote, Then they've influenced me into starting to jumping in, on, onto her. But I'm not jumping like where her pelvis is. He said in the interview that his brothers, who he described as divvy bastards, were jumping on her chest thinking it's funny then obviously flipping her onto the bed then nearly bouncing her off the edge of the bed 
During the 40-minute interview, he describes sometimes even laughing as he does. The wrestling moves tell investigators how he got frail Delith up on his shoulders and then slammed her onto a bed, saying, Yeah, I think it was something called a move called FU, like, because they kept on doing it the other day, something called the FU. Then it's like two people where they grab a head like that and he demonstrates the move. And then obviously they lift her up and they whop her back. Now this move, known as an FU or attitude adjustment, is famously used by WWE star John Cena, though it's also used in other wrestling federations by other names. It is a highly dangerous move, which sees the opponent hoisted onto the attacker's shoulders before being swung by their neck and slammed onto their back. Brock Lesnar does a very similar thing called the F5, and if you see them, you think, that's got to hurt, but in a professional ring and all that is different to a bedroom. Scott Knight then goes on to describe the T-bone wrestling move, claiming, It wins you. It doesn't like hurt you in any way. I know that move does take your breath away because I've seen it on UFC. I did mine downstairs. Adam done his upstairs. Josh done, I think, his downstairs. And then it was rainbow flip and then FUs and that was it, he said. He also laughed as he described the cliffhanger. He says, where you do the splits and just jump in the air, you go, whop. When interviewed by police, Scott Knight confessed that they'd only stopped the attack because they were too tired to continue and left her so they could go to bed. It's monstrous beyond belief, isn't it? He says, so basically... We're all equal as his own, as our own person. I shouldn't have done it. Now I looked up some of these moves on YouTube and they look, as I said before, they look devastating enough when performed by professionals in a professional wrestling ring. So by idiotic drug-fueled amateurs committed in a small bedroom to a scared, diminutive woman. You can't even begin to imagine, can you? Horrific and cruel beyond belief. Oliver Saxby Casey, defending Scott Knight, told Canterbury Crown Court during his summing up. You must have despaired at what the world had come to that three young men should treat someone so needing of good treatment so utterly without any mercy. In a word, mindless. It is the sort of mindless activity that you read about in newspapers and perhaps doubt that it actually happened because it's so unfathomable and shocking. To say that the events reflect badly on these three barely scratch the surface. Their shattered backgrounds, indiscipline, encouragement from others, non-existent parenting, issues are plenty, yes. But none of this made them do what they did. Prosecutor Philip Bennett's Casey, in his final speech, said that the beating that the three gave Miss Andrews was the equivalent to the length that the jury had sat each day hearing evidence. Just try and get your head around that. Saying, This was a sustained and vicious attack, and the Crown says, It is inconceivable that those three young men intended anything other than to cause her really serious harm. He said the bipolar suffering Miss Andrews had found life alone difficult and had limited social activity. Then she met the mother of the Knight brothers, Elaine Morley. Mr. Bennett said, 
You may think that Elaine Morley saw this as a golden opportunity, an empty house apart from one easily controlled and vulnerable woman. He said Miss Andrews had had her home invaded and items stolen by the brothers. The prosecutor said the brothers had bullied an extremely vulnerable woman and degraded her by pulling down her pants and laughingly mocking her. Mr. Bennett added, They had no respect for her. They humiliated her to entertain themselves, trashed her home, belittled and terrorised her. They stripped everything that could be converted into cash, taking Miss Andrews CDs, DVDs, jewellery and ornaments. He said Miss Andrews' once nice home had been wrecked, with ripped wallpaper, broken doors and left resembling a drug's den, adding, They killed Miss Andrews, and that is not in dispute. Those injuries she suffered were comparable to someone being in a road traffic collision. The jury took three days of deliberation before finding each of the Knight brothers guilty of murder on Thursday the 14th of July 2016. Miss Andrew's sister Sharm Brown clutched a pair of Delith's earrings, the only item of hers that her family were able to salvage from her home, and wept as the verdicts were read out. The brothers remained impassive as presiding judge Adele Williams Casey told them, In my judgment, you are equally responsible, equally guilty. You treated Delith Andrews with the utmost cruelty and callousness and terrorised her. What you did was slow torture over many hours. Your mother must bear responsibility in a moral sense, if not a legal one, for her own cruelty, her own dishonesty. She also failed to summon help for many hours on that night. The judge also commended police for their thorough and painstaking investigation into the killing. Scott, Adam and Joshua Knight were then each jailed for life to serve a minimum term of 23 years imprisonment each, but told that they may never be released from prison. They said nothing as they were then taken away to begin their sentences. Senior Investigating Officer Detective Chief Inspector Nick Gossett said, following their sentencing, This case was truly horrific. The brothers took advantage of the victim's generous nature. They moved in and turned her into a prisoner in her own home. They carried out a prolonged and unprovoked attack on a vulnerable woman and left her to die. Unfortunately for these defendants, their actions on the night spoke louder than any defence they could offer and they've been found guilty. My thoughts are with Miss Andrew's family and friends and I would like to thank them for their support in this case. Speaking after the Knight brothers were convicted of a murder at Canterbury Crown Court, Delith Andrew's sister, Sean Brown, who had sat through the entire three-week trial, later released an emotional statement talking of her love for a compassionate and generous-to-a-fault sister who had been taken from her so cruelly, continuing. Delith was our baby sister. As we all grew up and moved out to start our own lives, Delith remained living with Dad and cared for him until the end of his life. As a consequence, when Dad did die, she was bereft and struggled to cope. Delith suffered from mental health issues and went off the rails for some time. Sean told how the family had tried desperately to help, but that Delith had not made it easy to, continuing. In addition, 
we felt let down by outside agencies. However, it's very difficult to help someone who doesn't want to be helped. Delith began to neglect her true friends and pushed her family away and this only left her all the more exposed and vulnerable to anyone who would choose to exploit her. She was too trusting and had a false sense of loyalty. She wouldn't consider telling tales on others, particularly if she considered them a friend. She was easily won over and manipulated, and therefore an easy target to be taken advantage of. Shan said her sister was always in our thoughts, even despite not seeing her for some time, saying, She always knew how to get hold of us if she needed us. She'd done it regularly in the past, and we were confident that she would do it again. But the fact that we heard nothing led us to assume that all was well. It's difficult to be estranged from a loved one, and of course now, after what has happened, we have feelings of regret, what ifs, and could we have done more? Maybe perhaps build those bridges towards someone vulnerable, and not wait for them to do it. Following the Knight Brothers sentencing, a spokesperson for WWE said, WWE offers its heartfelt condolences to Delith Andrews' family and friends. It is outrageous and offensive that WWE would be dragged into what was clearly a repeated, brutal and ultimately fatal attack on Delith Andrews. We are appalled that WWE has been senselessly dragged into this heinous crime and find it beyond disturbing that these three men would use stunts allegedly performed in WWE's family-friendly entertainment to describe their torturous and heinous crimes. We doubt the veracity of their statements that WWE were moves, when in fact there are no moves such as rainbow flips, T-bones and cliffhangers. The verdict has brought these murderers to justice for their heinous crimes. Terrible cases these, aren't they? And you can't imagine the lasting pain and anguish brought to so many families through a moment of stupidity by an individual or individuals that should know better. As I said earlier on in the episode, emulating moves demonstrated by the likes of John Cena or The Undertaker. Perhaps I would have done it when I was a stupid kid because you think it's just a laugh then, copying what your heroes do. But it's incredibly dangerous. These people are trained professionals who know exactly how much force to use, what height to drop from, how to land safely, plus they're choreographed with their opponent also to make it look convincing and effective. You can't just do it in a bloody car park and think, oh well, come on, get up, they do on telly, when they don't, because they're seriously hurt, because it's a car park, not a bloody wrestling ring. A trained professional such as Riley should have exercised the self-restraint that must be as important for such a career, knowing you have the capability to seriously injure a person, and I think he deserved a prison sentence for his actions, as did Mackin and Smith, who both got off somewhat lightly, I thought, for theirs. All three will have to live with a lasting memory of their actions for the remainder of their lives now, and all best lessons are those that are learned hard, so I can muster no sympathy whatsoever for them. And I certainly, certainly can muster none for the Knight Brothers. Three deserved life sentences there. I am especially angered by crimes committed against the vulnerable, for there seems to just be that extra level of callousness with those, doesn't it? And these three, 
Well, they just sound vile to begin with anyway, don't they? But to assault and throw around a diminutive and vulnerable woman so severely that her bed breaks, her ribs and her back do also, with no consideration for the fear and distress she would have felt, the injuries she would suffer, just for their own amusement. For seven hours also. That is just monstrous. I thought it was a despicable crime, a really tragic one. What would be perfect just desserts for the three would be for someone in prison to regularly do the same things to them for seven hours, especially since it wouldn't be an eight stone, four foot eleven inch tall woman doing it either. I hope prison time is hard for each of them, I really do. What do you think? I would love, as always, hearing your thoughts and feedback on the accounts I've brought you in the episode One Wrong Move, which you can do, as always, in the thread that's now up and running in the show's Facebook discussion group, or wherever you want to, really. I'm always happy to talk wherever. Now, it's Patreon week upcoming, so I shall be back with another tale on the regular enthusiast early in the next month that I look forward to you joining me and the Mog for. With that, I shall wrap up and shut up now then, and all that remains for me to say is that it's been my pleasure as always having you joining me, which I thank you kindly for doing so. And I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.